Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. It's been a while since I've read an email to you all. I used to read emails every so often because it's so very encouraging, especially in the early days of our website. It was exciting to get feedback from people. And then as time went by and the, the volume of email grew, it reached the point where it seemed sort of self-serving to come in here every week with emails about how much people love what we're doing here. But this particular email is about what I said a week ago Wednesday. By the way, thanks to Tom for filling in for me last week. Filling in for me. He didn't fill in for me. He stood here and preached God's word. That's what he did. But I appreciate that while I was uh, prepping for my Thursday procedure. And so that's what this particular email is about, is uh, the comments that I made two weeks ago. And I'm just going to share it with you because I like this comment, because somebody got it. Somebody understood what I was trying to do. Pastor Jim, once again, I am refreshed in listening to the services that are provided online at GCA. So few churches teach verse by verse like we do here in Columbus at Riverside Bible. There, Riverside Bible Church, shout out to you. There you go, in Columbus. And the Columbus folks in the back are testifying. The Ohioans like it. That's right. Many times I will listen to very good Bible teachers out there and walk away feeling burdened at times because they can concentrate many times on hot topic issues rather than the word of our almighty God. In reality, what ended up being a side comment from your Wednesday service on September 9th, in it you mentioned that you did not feel the need to add much commentary to what was said in the text. One word for you, sir. Amen. You then said that the concentration on the word itself will either drive people away or it will change you because it is God's word that does that. Good Bible teachers often fall into the trap that their efforts in teaching can bring about change instead of relying on the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who convinces us and quickens our new creation in Christ. Letting the context of verse-by-verse study drive your services has served you and your congregation well, and I believe that it gives proper glory and honor to God. I will leave you with that encouragement not to inflate your ego, but to offer fellowship and appreciation to a fellow brother in the Lord. My love goes to all the brethren who I have not met there at GCA. Lord willing, someday I may make it down to visit you. So that was just very, very nice, but he got it. The last couple of weeks, what I've been doing is we've been working out of the book of Hosea, as we will again tonight. And then we've been jumping over to Ezekiel. We've been jumping over to Jeremiah. In the weeks to come, we might spend a little time in Isaiah because I'm trying to show, trying to prove, trying to demonstrate that the prophets, whether major or minor prophets, all say the same thing. They're all telling the same story. And those of us who believe in a future for Israel, those of us who believe that God is going to restore national Israel and that he has not given up on them, we suffer from what can only be described as an embarrassment of riches because we have so much Bible to work with that we're not just talking about something that is isolated or tucked away somewhere or some inference that we're drawing from a sketchy verse or something like that. We're just reading huge swaths of text and showing how the Old Testament prophets say the same thing that the New Testament prophets say. They all say they are all expecting the same thing, which is that God is going to be faithful to Israel. And if he is not faithful to Israel, I keep saying over and over, if he is not faithful to Israel, then you have absolutely no confidence that he's going to be faithful to you. And you want him to be faithful to you. If he can make promises to a particular people group, and make those promises over and over and over again over the course of hundreds and hundreds, indeed thousands of years. 
and then renege, change his mind, never mind. When, when I said you, I meant somebody else. If it turns out that's the way God works, and if somebody can prove to me that that's the way God works, then my hope is completely undermined. My faith and confidence that I'm going to be okay when I leave this world is utterly undermined if I can't trust that God says what he means and means what he says and that he's wise enough to know who he's talking to and that when he makes promises to a particular person or people group, he means to keep those promises to that person or people group. In the New Testament, phrases like you must be born again occur once. In John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. And yet there's no question about it. We would all agree. We would all take that very literally and say, that is an absolute. You must be born again. But how many times in how many places in how many passages have we seen God say that he's going to restore Israel and bring them back and put them in their land? David's greater son is going to rule over them. How many times have we seen the exact same paradigm laid out over and over again? God says that Israel rebelled. Israel has to be punished for their rebellion. However, because God is faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, therefore God is not going to utterly abandon Israel because after all, he loves Israel with, Jeremiah 31.3, an everlasting love. And those words must mean something. And sadly, people seem confused about what they mean. Those words are not strange, they're not peculiar, they're not in a weird language or strange tongue. They're just clear, didactic statements from God that for some reason people can't seem to fit into their overall theology, which frustrates the fool out of me because, as I have said repeatedly, we need to let the word of God form our thinking. We can't impose our thinking onto the word of God. Whenever you impose your system or your desired conclusion onto the word of God, then you are engaging in what is called eisegesis. But worse, what you're doing is judging the word of God. You're making yourself the judge of God's truth, and you are conforming God's word and God's truth to what you prefer as opposed to the proper approach, which is allowing God's word and God's declaration to adjust and change and design how you think. And that's the only right way to go. Right? Turn to Hosea 3. That's where we're picking up tonight. Now, Hosea 3 and 4, even though Hosea 3 has a little bit of that predictive restoration language in it, chapter 4 is God stating his case. So here's the big picture. And the more we get this big picture, the more we're going to see how it has to affect our overall eschatology, our view of end-time things. God, in dealing with Israel, gave them the law at Mount Sinai, and that law included both blessings and cursings. Do the law, follow every dictate of the law, and God would bless Israel, bless them with things like land of milk and honey, Every year, they would have a good harvest. They would be fine. The land would take care of them. He would even protect them from wild animals. He would protect them from their enemies, and he would let them live in peace and safety in their land if they followed his law. And then, of course, you know, they didn't. Chief among the things they didn't do is that they didn't keep his Sabbaths. And so God is taking Israel, the northern tribes at this juncture in time, out of the land so that the land can enjoy its Sabbaths, its rest, by taking the people who have defiled the land out of the land. But then God is not going to leave Israel in that scattered state out of their property. He is going to eventually bring them back to that land, plant them permanently, give them rest roundabout, and establish a kingdom that is never going to be conquered. And they're going to live in peace and safety with David's greater son as their ruler and the kingdoms of the nations are going to flow to Jerusalem. But before he can go from you're really bad and you're really rebellious all the way to and here's your kingdom and here's your restoration, in the middle there has to be a readjustment, an attitude readjustment. Israel 
has to be punished. Israel has to pay for their rebellion against God. And so that is what God is doing. The first stage of this punishment is taking them out of their land and scattering them among the nations. But that punishment is going to culminate in something that is called a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, which Jeremiah very specifically calls the time of Jacob's trouble. But then he says, but he will be delivered from it. Why? Well, because they are Israel, and they have the promises of restoration coming. But first, God is going to punish them. So when you think eschatology, when you think book of Revelation, when you think end time stuff, if you extricate Israel from that, you've taken the central issue out of your eschatology. If you think that the eschatological events that are described in both the Old and New Testament, whether it's Joel, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's Revelation, when looking at those details, if you don't recognize that this is all about Israel and God ultimately punishing for the purpose of restoring Israel, and you think that this is really just all about the church, then there's no way that you can get a fully orbed balanced eschatology. And again, far too often, what's happening in the church world these days is that people have a theology that doesn't include Israel to begin with, and so naturally then their eschatology excludes Israel. And the same way that they read Israel's promises in the Old Testament and say, that's the church, they end up doing the same thing with the eschatological information and stuff that applies to Israel, they say, well, this applies to the church. So you have to remember that the time of trouble that's coming that Jesus talks about, we'll get to it on Sunday morning when we finally get to Matthew 24, and he makes a direct reference to Daniel. And Daniel says this is all about his people, his city. It's all about Jerusalem, and it's all about Israel. And Jeremiah picks up the same language of the same period of time and calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, very particular language. And then Jesus talks about that period of time and says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then flee from Jerusalem. All of that language is just so Jerusalem-centric. It's so Israel-centric that if you try to extricate Israel from it, you can't help but get a bad eschatological conclusion. Does that all make sense? Because what we're going to see tonight is that very thing where God is now telling Israel, taking you out of your land, but I'm going to bring you back to your land, but I have a case against you, and because I have a case against you, I'm going to bring about a time of punishment, yet future. And it's all about Israel. So here's what happened. So here's what we're going to read in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hosea had married a woman of whoredoms. She had three children. Apparently only the first one, Jezreel, was actually his child. And then she took off and chased after her other lovers. She delivered two more children, Lo-Ruhama and Lo-Ami. God uses those names to say, in the place where I scatter them, in the place where they are called not my people, they're going to be called my people. In the place where it is said to them, no mercy, I'm going to say to them, mercy. So then, in sort of a summary statement, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband and yet an adulteress. I believe he's talking about Gomer. Go back and marry Gomer again. Go back and get her and bring her back to yourself. But look at this phrase. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. We'll talk about what that means real quick. Because it's interesting that the Pope is here right now as we come across this particular phrase. I don't mean here at GCA right now. Wouldn't we all be surprised? <laughs> the Pope Mobile pulls up out front. Look, it's the Pope. Well, good. He needs some gospel. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Sorry. So the point that God makes here is despite the fact that he is punishing the sons of Israel and despite the fact that they have rebelled 
Nevertheless, he tells Hosea, your erring wife that is off chasing her lovers. Remember what we saw two weeks ago. God says, I'll build a hedge around her. I'll keep her from her lovers. I'll strip her naked. I'll make her hungry until she has to come back to me because she's got nowhere else to go. Okay, now God explains, I'm not doing that because I hate her. I'm doing that because I love her. And I'm going to bring her back to me because I know that's what's best for her. And so even though she is an erring, adulterous wife, he says, go and remarry her, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Now, the the raisin cakes thing has to do with baking cakes to the queen of heaven, little round cakes. Sometimes they're barley cakes. Sometimes they were raisin cakes, little round cakes baked to the queen of heaven. When you read about them worshiping on the mountains and in the Asherah, and they're worshiping the female gods in the groves, the female gods, Ishtar, various different names, is the queen of heaven. And if that language sounds familiar, that language, that concept carried right over from Babylon to the Catholic Church, and they now refer to Mary as the queen of heaven, And they have these little round wafer cakes they use that they worship her with. Mm. So God loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to their other gods. Verse 2. So Hosea says, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man So I will always be for you or toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or teraphim. The NASB translates it as household gods, which doesn't really make any sense. The word teraphim is also the Hebrew word for a deed of trust or a land deed. If you own a piece of land, you would have a deed to it. And I think that makes more sense contextually than God saying they won't have their household gods anymore. But look at the things that he said. Israel will remain for many days, a long time, without a king or a prince, without sacrifice. Okay, so they're not going to be doing the sacrifices. They're not going to be doing the yearly or the weekly sacrifice. They're not going to be doing the Sabbath sacrifices. They don't have a sacred pillar. These are objects of worship. They're not going to have the ephod, which was the divining element that was used by the prophets. And so they're not going to have a prophet, and they're not going to have the worship, and they're not going to have the sacrifice. So there's going to be no mediation for them, and they're going to exist in that state for a really long time, which is why I've said a couple of times, if you go looking for the quote-unquote lost tribes, Don't expect them to look Jewish. Don't expect them to be acting Jewish. They have lost their sense of who they are. They've lost their heritage. They've lost their religion. And they've been scattered to the nations. And they'll be in that state for a long time. But look at verse 5. And afterward, after being scattered for a long time, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness when? In the last days. So what have we just been told in that very short chapter? It is a summation of God's dealings with Israel. It includes Israel has rebelled. Israel's scattered out of their land. Israel is taken away from their History, their posterity, they're taken away from their worship. They don't have a prophet. They're taken away from even the ability to intercede. What we talked about on Sunday, the Day of Atonement, they have none of this anymore. They've lost their sense of who they are. They've lost their heritage. They've lost their connection. And yet, God says, despite the fact that they played the harlot and chased other gods, nevertheless, God loves them. And because he loves them, Despite the fact that they have done all these things, Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord 
and to his goodness in the last days. Okay, so what's the transition? How do they go from rebels who God is actively punishing to coming back trembling, looking for, accepting God, looking for Christ, looking for David's greater son? What happens? Well, what happens is time of tribulation, time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again, the time of Jacob's trouble that drives them back to God, exactly as he described. I'm going to hedge her around. I'm going to expose her nakedness. I'm going to drive her to a point where she's got nothing but me. Right. Right. And when that occurs, then you're going to see the, the outbreak of what's been described here. They'll be brought back into their land. They'll be established. They'll have a kingdom. David's greater son ruling on David's throne. The nations all flowing to Jerusalem. But in order to get them there, first, they have to go through this time of terrible trouble. And that is described in chapter 4, but we're not going to go there immediately. We probably won't even get there tonight. Turn to Jeremiah 16. The United States is not going to save Israel. The United States is not going to save Israel. No. Jesus alone. That's not how it's going to work out. Now, we're going to read some pretty big chunks of Jeremiah tonight, and so I will do as the email said and try to read large chunks without a great deal of commentary because, again, the Word of God is plain. It's clear. It's not ambiguous. It is God explaining exactly what's going on with Israel and what he plans to do. Now, for the most part, Jeremiah is dealing with the southern tribes. He's dealing with Judah. He's talking about the 70 years that they're going to be in captivity in Babylon. He is the inspiration, as we have seen, for Daniel recognizing that the 70 years are nearly over after Babylon had fallen to Medo-Persia, and Daniel was still there serving under the Medo-Persian king. And as he's praying, the angel comes to him, Gabriel, and tells him that, in fact, 70 times 7 are determined on his people and on his holy city to accomplish six things. And so Jeremiah, Daniel, that's mostly about the southern kingdom. However... Part of the problem with the southern kingdom is that they have seen what God has done to the northern kingdom. And so God's expectation, this takes us back to the Ezekiel stuff, Ahola and Aholabah, that they have already seen what God did in punishing the northern tribes for their rebellion, for their chasing foreign gods. So you would think rationally that the southern kingdom would go, well, we shouldn't do that. And yet that's the very thing that they do. And so God ends up saying that Jerusalem is more guilty. The southern kingdom, Judah, is more guilty than the northern kingdom. And in fact, in some ways, end up justifying not only the northern kingdom, but justifying Sodom. Because they know what God did to Sodom. They know what God did to Israel, the northern tribes. And yet for all that, they continue in their harlotries and chasing their foreign gods. So God holds them even guiltier and that brings Jeremiah onto the stage of history. But much of what Jeremiah has to say deals with both the northern and the southern tribes. has to deal with both nations. So that's why we're going to look at some of these passages. Chapter 16, the reason we're going there is that it is a description of exactly what I described a few minutes ago. God is going to take Israel through a cleansing process. He's going to take them through a time of trying them in the fire, burning off the dross until only the pure silver is left over. And that process, that time, is a time of trouble such as never has been, ever will be again once it occurs. And that's what he's going to describe in chapter 16, starting at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me saying... To Jeremiah, you shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bear them, and their fathers who beget them in this land. They will die of deadly diseases, and they will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground and come to an end by sword and famine, and their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, Do not enter a house of mourning, or go to lament, or to console them, 
For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and my compassion. Both great men and small will die in this land, and they will not be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. Neither will men break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Moreover, you shall not go into a house of feasting to sit with them to eat or to drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness and a voice of a groom and the voice of a bride. Now it will come about when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity? And what is our sin which we have committed against the Lord our God? And then you will say to them, It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and you have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken, and they have not kept my law. You too have done evil, even more than your forefathers, for behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor." Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but it will be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he has banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Okay, so here's what's going on. So God is laying out, I've used the word paradigm already tonight. He's laying out a basic structure. This is how I work. This is what I do. You've chased after your foreign gods. You've ignored me. Therefore, I'm going to drive you out of the land, which I gave you as a gift, as part of my covenant with you. I'm going to drive you out of that land, and I'm going to scatter you the same way that I scattered, scattered northern Israel. And once you recognize that I'm the one who punished you, once you come to realize your need of me, I'm not done with you. The end result of this is going to be that I will draw you back to myself. The ultimate end of it, one more time, is that rather than people referring to the God of Israel as the God who brought Israel out of Egypt into their land, they will begin referring to him as the God who brought Israel out of everywhere to their land. Yeah, and so it's no longer a deliverance or a redemption just from Egypt. It's now a deliverance and a redemption from all the nations of the earth and all the places of the north and everywhere where I drove you, everywhere that I scattered you, all the places that he banished you, for I will restore to them their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I'm going to send you many fishermen, declares the Lord. And they will go out and fish for them. Afterwards, I will send you many hunters. And they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. If that language sounds familiar, Jesus, when he gathered the twelve and told them to go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, said to them, I'll make you fishers of men. Which is language that resonates from Jeremiah. God said, I'm going to send you out like fishermen. And fishermen are going to go gather all my Israelites and bring them back. I'm going to send out hunters. And they're going to go find them. And notice the language. Even if they're in a mountain, every hill or in the cleft of a rock. God will send somebody to go find them. And bring them back. For my eyes are on all their ways. And they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. And I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land. 
They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold and my refuge in the day of distress, to thee the nations will come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but falsehood, futility, and things of no profit. Can man make gods for himself? Yet they are not gods. Therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, that they may know my name is the Lord. So there is a time coming when God is not just going to say, here's a covenant, here's my deal, good luck, work hard. But that he is going to change them, convert them, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. What is the promise that we read in the new covenant? Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, that God says that he is going to write his law on their inward parts and on their hearts. He's going to place his spirit inside them. He is going to make sure by his own power and his own might that they know that his name is the Lord. In that passage, God lays out the basic plan. This is how I work. You rebel, I punish you, I bring you back. Got it? Big picture? Okay, go to Jeremiah 30. We're going to read a big chunk there. We are going to start right at chapter 30, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold... Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Is there anything vague about that? How many times have we heard it? How many people have we heard say it? How many prophets have brought this up? It's thematic. How in the world, how in the world, how, I have to, how in the world do you claim to be preaching the Bible and deny a future for Israel? That's why they were so sure. Can you see now why at the beginning of the book of Acts, the last question they asked Jesus before he sailed off the planet, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Yeah, that's... Still the expectation. That's always been the expectation. The fact that Jesus came and died and left didn't change the expectation. And they were completely biblical in asking that question. I am so tired of covenantal amillennial interpreters saying that when the disciples asked that question, they were asking it out of ignorance. They were asking it because just like everything else they didn't understand, just like Jesus saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed, and they would say, no, far be it from you, that that was the same mindset they had when they asked the question, will you restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? It was a question of ignorance that they were at. No, it's a question firmly based in everything the prophets have ever promised Israel. A perfectly good, legitimate question. And by the way, you'll notice that Jesus did not respond by saying, guys, come on, don't you understand anything yet? No, they asked him a time question. Will you restore the kingdom at this time? He gave him a time answer. It's not up to you to know. What he didn't say was, it's spiritual now. Don't you get it? Israel's the church. Come on, guys. There was none of that. Anyway, I got to get back to this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words that I have spoken to you in a book, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah, northern tribe, southern tribe. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. 
And why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in childbirth? In other words, he's saying every man is doubled over. Every man is in pain. Every man looks like a woman giving birth. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great and there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. Okay, so now God has launched all the way out to there's a time coming a time of such trouble, a time of such distress, that it's not like anything that has ever been before. Jesus picks up that exact language. You'll see it, as I said, when we get to Matthew 24. and says, there's a time of trouble coming, such as never was or ever will be again. And who's he saying it to? The Jews, who are the people who it is directed at, because it's a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob being the progenitor of the 12 tribes. And notice that the prophecy is specifically concerning Israel and concerning Judah. So this prophecy of a time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, is all about Israel and Judah. Is that plain enough? Am I beating a dead horse up here? Because to me, this leaps out as phenomenally obvious. And so when we get to Matthew 24... I'm going to be viewing it from this perspective. It's just good timing on God's part that we're talking about this right now on Wednesday nights as we're getting ready to get closer to Matthew 24 on Sundays because the perspective I'm going to take is this is about Israel and Judah. And why do I take that perspective? Because it's what the Bible says over and over and over again. But notice, this time of Jacob's trouble, a day so great there's none like it, And yet Jacob will be saved from it. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke off their neck and I will tear off their bonds and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. But they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So first they have to encounter this time of trouble And then the kingdom results, which is another reason that I can't adhere to the amillennial concept that we're in the kingdom now, because the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again hasn't happened. So we can't be in the kingdom now because the kingdom belongs to Israel, not the church. Absolutely. Nothing like it. Absolutely. So they're going to serve their Lord and they're going to serve David the king whom I will raise up to them and fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Notice how the language is changing. O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar. Why? Because they're scattered afar. They're all out of their land. They're out of their property. They're scattered to the four winds, but I'm going to bring you back. I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and shall be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly. And will by no means leave you unpunished. There's the paradigm again. God's going to punish them first. Justly and adequately. And that's the whole reason why there is a time of trouble coming. Such as never was or ever would be again. The time that Daniel talks about. The time that Jeremiah talks about. The time that Jesus talks about. And they all describe it the same way. A time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. But Jeremiah tells us specifically this is Jacob's trouble. And Jacob is going to be delivered from it. And then after that, once God has adequately punished and justly punished them, then he's going to gather them to their land to establish their kingdom, David their king. All of that is going to happen. But first comes the punishment. I'll completely destroy the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly. 
and I will by no means leave you unpunished, for thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable, and your injury is serious. There is no need to plead your cause. There's no healing for your sore, and there's no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. If this sounds similar, it's what we were reading over in Hosea 2, that God was going to hedge them about and cause your enemies to hate you. And I'm going to expose your nakedness and I'm going to drive you back to me. The same thing that Jeremiah is predicting with different words. I'm going to wound you with the wound of an enemy. There's a cruel punishment because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable. Because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you shall be for plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion, and no one cares for her. Notice the description. The description is not only a perfect description of Israel in their rebellion, but it's a really good description of human beings in their natural state. We have an incurable wound. There's nothing we can do that is going to help us to recover. He says, there's no need for you to plead your cause. There's no healing your sore. There's no recovery for you. There's nothing you can do to help yourself. The only answer is in verse 17, I will restore you to health. I will heal your wounds, declares the Lord. And I love it when I think of that being my relationship with God. I love it when I think that God is going to heal my incurable wound. But I can't deny it to Israel because they're the ones who have the promise that God is going to cure their wound. That's right. So verse 18, therefore says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. Does that sound familiar? It's the same stuff. The, the prophets are all saying the same thing over and over again. I will have compassion on his dwelling places, and the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace shall stand in its rightful place. And from them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be diminished. Remember what we just read earlier from chapter 16? Don't make merry. Don't go to the feast. Don't celebrate with each other. As their children die from sickness, don't give them any kind of cup of consolation. Now the time is coming when they're going to be brought back. Their voices are going to make merry. God will multiply them, and they will not be diminished, and I will honor them and they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors, and their leader shall be one of them, and their ruler shall come forth from their midst, and I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And behold, the tempest of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest, and it shall burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. This is all latter-day stuff. This is all end-time stuff. This is day of the Lord stuff. That language of a tempest of the Lord, a sweeping tempest that bursts on the head of the wicked, the fierce anger of the Lord. This is day of the Lord stuff. But what's it about? It's about Israel. Chapter 31, verse 1. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, 
I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now, I have quoted that verse so many times in my life. I have used it to reassure people and said, if God has ever loved you, it is because he has always loved you. God did not go from not loving you to loving you, and he does not go from loving you to not loving you because God doesn't change. If he loves you, it's because he has always loved you, and he loves you because he is determined to love you. And I have so many times quoted it. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And I love that verse, and I love to quote it, and it's a great promise, but who does it belong to? Israel. Israel, that's Israel's promise. Remember who God's talking about. He's talking about people he is so angry with that he has likened them to whores. He is so angry with them that he has driven them out of their land and is pouring out punishment after punishment on them. He is so upset with them that they haven't been in their land for about 2,700 years now. And yet he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with a loving kindness, I'm going to draw you. Who's he talking to? Israel, scattered Israel. I'm going to draw you. Draw you where? Draw you back to your land. Draw you back to the place that I've always promised you. I'll be a God to all the families of Israel. They'll be my people. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when they went to find its rest. And the Lord appeared to them from afar and said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. And again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. What? Whores, prostitutes, erring wives, divorced wife, virgin. When he restores them, he is going to do for them what he has done for you. We look at the language of born again in the New Testament, and it says that all things are made new. We're made a new man. In the eyes of God, he doesn't see Tyler the sinner. He sees Tyler the saint. Tyler knows he's Tyler the sinner. God sees him as beloved. Beloved how? Beloved in the beloved one, accepted and received in Christ. God has loved Tyler with an everlasting love, and so he drew Tyler to himself. But God changed Tyler. Now, am I willing to say that about Tyler and say God can't do it for Israel? Because they're the ones who actually have the promises and the covenants and the prophets. They're the ones who God repeatedly has said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. With loving kindness, I'm going to draw you, but not only draw you, I'm going to draw you. I'm going to build you. I'm going to establish you, O virgin of Israel. And again, you shall take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances and the merrymakers. And again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy them. For there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out, saying, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim and give praise and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Here's the language again, the gathering language. Verse 8. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, she who is in labor with child, together a great company, and they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim, my firstborn. Okay, what does that mean? I am a father to Israel, northern kingdoms, and Ephraim, that's the northern tribes. That's the scattered ones. Those are the ones who have been out of their land since the Assyrian captivity. Those are the chasing foreign gods, Ahab ones. These are the worst of the worst. These are the ones that God has punished all these long years. And the firstborn gets most of the inheritance. And the firstborn gets most of the inheritance. 
for I'm a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Despite everything they did, I'm a father to them. Can't change that. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlines afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil and over the young of the flock and of the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall never languish again. And then the virgin shall rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. One more passage. Go over to Jeremiah 33. You know that the rest of Jeremiah 31, where we just were, if we continued on, starting in verse 27, you have the promise of the new covenant. I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt by the hand, which covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them. Okay, that's the promise of a new covenant God's going to form with them. And then go to chapter 33, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name, call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men, whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath. And I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. And I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do for them, and they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. You'll hear the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of those that will bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there shall again be in this place, which is a waste, without man or beast. And in all its cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. In the cities of the hill country and in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev and in the land of Benjamin and in the environs of Jerusalem and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hand of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And now the language gets very, very messianic. How is God going to reestablish Israel? How is he going to change them from within? How is he going to recompense them for all the evil they've done? Through the righteous branch of Jesse. 
He's going to do it through Christ. I am accused far too often by people who hear this teaching who say, well, then you're saying that the church and Israel are so separate that you're claiming there's two different ways of salvation. No, 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 no. That is so far away from what I am saying. All salvation, all redemption is a result of Christ. Is it two different people groups? Yes, absolutely. And we've seen it you know, time and time again that even in the New Testament, the groups are still specific. The groups are still designated. Paul certainly does that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He keeps the difference between the church, which is made up of every kindred, tongue, nation, and tribe, separate from Israel, which is descendants of the 12 tribes. He understands those distinctions because the 12 tribes have promises and covenants that the rest of the people group simply don't have. But in Christ, the promises of God are yea and amen. All these promises, all these prophecies come to their fruition through Christ. Zechariah tells us that when he returns and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, that the Mount of Olives is going to split in half. Israel will look on him whom they have pierced. And Jesus quotes that in order to tell the Pharisees that the day is coming when they're going to see him return and they're going to look on him whom they pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. Restoration is coming to Israel, but it's not merely national restoration. It's not merely geographic or political restoration. Spiritual restoration is coming to Israel. They have spent all this time in the darkness. They have spent all this time scattered. They've spent all this time wandering. But because God loves them and has loved them with an everlasting love, he has promised to restore them and not only to restore them, but set up a king who is their savior. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And in those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. It's the new name he's going to give to Israel. Not yet, not now, not currently, but that's going to be their name. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's the Davidic covenant. God remembers his covenants. He remembers every word he's ever said. And so a righteous branch of David. This is why it's so important that when you get to like the book of Matthew and you read the genealogies, that the genealogies trace Jesus to David on purpose. That's why it's so important that at his triumphal entry within a week of when he's hanging on the cross, mm -hmm. the people of Jerusalem throw palm branches and their cloaks in the street and say, Hosanna to the son of David because they are recognizing him as the righteous branch of David, which is why they expect him to establish the kingdom. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day, and my covenant for the night. Do you understand what he's saying? If you can make day and night stop so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant can also be broken with David, my servant. As long as there's day and night, as long as this planet is turning, as long as the sun is up there in the stratosphere, as long as all of that is real, the Davidic covenant stands. And who's the Davidic covenant with? Israel. Israel. It's with Israel. Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying, the two families which the Lord chose, that be Judah and Israel, 
the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them? Have you not noticed how the people are saying that? Israel scattered, Judah's in the in the Babylonian captivity, and so the common byword of all the people all around is the two families, the two houses that God chose, God abandoned. That's God's reputation at stake. He says to Jeremiah, haven't you heard how people are saying that? Thus they despise my people, and no longer are they a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant For day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established. Then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. Need I say more? No. That's what it says. Now, you have to develop your theology and your biblical thinking and your eschatology in such a way that it embraces all that. Because God has told you time and time and time and time again, this is what I'm doing. And he's going to do it. He's going to accomplish it. He's going to do every bit of it. Um, to this very day, sadly, there are people who think either because they've been ill-taught or because they ignore the word of God, twist or truncate it because they have a desired end they would like to get to, or they're so committed to a system that they can't allow the Bible to say what it says. But to this very day, there are people who say the two families that the Lord chose, he rejected God himself argued against that theology right here. So don't be thinking that. Don't be acting like that. Don't be talking like that. And he wagged his finger just like I did. God wags his finger at you. He says, you can't think like that. As long as the sun and the moon are up there, as long as day and night happens, then my promises to Israel are good. And you can't change it. By the way, it's not the first time he said that. At the very end of chapter 31... Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. He says it time and time again. He's in charge. He's absolutely sovereign. And because he's sovereign and he made heaven and earth, he knows how long heaven and earth is going to last. And he's the one that keeps it and sustains it. And if you think you can make God give up on Israel then you think you can talk God into letting go of his control of heaven, earth, the sun, the solar system, the moon. You you don't have that kind of power. You don't have that kind of authority to tell God what to do about Israel. And if you don't agree with what we read tonight, who are you to judge God? And who are you to judge his word? His word will not bend to accommodate you. His word will not change to accommodate your theology. His word does not change because it's the word of an absolute almighty. And if his word could change, you have no hope. The only reason you have any hope right now is because his word is steadfast and sure and trustworthy. And that means you are saved by the finished work of Christ. And that means Israel will be saved by the finished work of Christ. And that's what the Bible says. I'm talked out. I am genuinely talked out. I would ask if there's any questions, but I'm not going to. No, all right, I will. Any questions? Anything? You see what happened again? You see what happened? I've done this three Wednesdays in a row now where I have read enormous chunks of the Bible to you and then said, any questions? And you all go, no. Because it's that clear. By the way, how much interpreting did I do tonight? Not much. How much scripture twisting? How much, well, it can't mean what it says because this verse over here says, and because this verse over here says that I can play the Bible against itself, and then I can say that this doesn't mean what it says. None of that. You just let the word speak, and it will inform you of what you need to know. There is one thing I do want to say, though. Yes. Thank you for helping us 
connect the dots to to really to really learn what the scripture says and what the theme of the scripture is throughout the entire book. Just thank you for putting all those points together. Oh, you're welcome. To, uh, it's the gig. <laughs> By the way, how many of you had the experience of one day you suddenly understood that that the scripture says God is sovereign. And then once you got that, you saw it everywhere. Once you got it, it was, yeah, we're all going, yes, yes, exactly. You know, once you get God is sovereign, it's in every page. You see it everywhere. This is very much the same. Once you get Israel in the Bible, it's all the way through the Bible. It's permeating the Bible. But there's a lot of the Bible, those people just read through the colored poetry. Yeah. It's just poetry, or it's just. This is one of the big complaints that I have, Gladys, with the allegorical approach to the Bible. I have heard people preach on several of the passages I read tonight. Well, they wouldn't preach the passage, they would preach an out of context verse where God said something good about Israel and their future, and they would take that out and make it about you, or make it about the church, or make it about. You know? Let the word speak. Let the word say what it says and let it say it. Because here's the important thing. We as the church, we as redeemed Gentiles who have been brought to faith by the grace of God and the finished work of Christ, we already have a really wonderful story in the Bible. We already have a great theology in the Bible. We don't need Israel's. We've already got one of our own and it's wonderful. It's full of grace and, and magnificent kindness from God that we don't have the covenants and the promises and the history and the fathers and everything else. And we're brought to God through the finished work of Christ. Okay, that's a great story. Hang on to that because that's your story. But don't negate Israel's story. That's their story. Right? right. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.